1: Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org.
0: I think for everyone who gets out of the military, it's tough to figure out what you're going to do next and how you're going to find your purpose after you've had one that is so intense with the type of purpose I think many of us experience when we serve. And so for me, it was a real leap of faith to try to find my purpose in something that in many respects was so different from the experience that I just had.
1: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is Elliot Ackerman, marine combat veteran and bestselling author. He is a prolific writer and commentator and has authored five novels and a memoir exploring war and its aftermath. His most recent book is 2034, a novel of the next world war. Elliot, thanks for joining us on Burn the Boats.
0: Thanks for having me, Ken.
1: So, you have just written or co written, I should say, this runaway bestseller with Admiral Stavridis 2034 about the challenge that an ascendant China poses to American interests around the world. It's a gripping read, but I I don't take you as some one note military thriller writer. In fact, you cut your teeth as an author writing deeply thoughtful, what I would call war lit. How do you straddle these two very different? Worlds, the New York literary scene on one hand, and I guess the more bravado driven vet scene that I'm more familiar with, they seem like they they
0: might clash. Oh, interesting. No one's ever asked me that before. Uh, I, yeah, I think, listen, I think I kind of uh, subscribe to Whitman's uh, wisdom, right? We all contain multitudes. So, um, like, since I got out of the military, people would often say to me, like, wow, that's so odd. You know, you do this like eight year career in the Marine Corps and then you, you know, became an author. It seems so odd to me that you would do that. But the people who've known me the longest would say, you know, we, we always found it so odd that you wound up in the Marine Corps because you were sort of this like creative, long haired kid who, you know, used to like skateboarding and was more artistically inclined. So again, I only bring that up because I think, you know, we all have like myriad interests. And I think that, you know, just because you served in the military doesn't mean you kind of only fit into one category. And I mean, and I know, obviously, you know that because you do many things. But I think that, uh, you know, I just, I don't know, I, I, I straddle those worlds. And perhaps when I'm, you know, hanging out with uh, my buddies I serve with and we're kind of talking about old times, you know, I'm engaging with one part of my life. And, you know, when I'm doing my work, I'm engaging with another part of my life. But there's also a lot of bleed over between the two.
1: There is. Within the Marine Corps, this this weirdly cerebral strain. I'm thinking about the authors that have influenced me, that have come from the Corps, that have contributed to that canon of war lit, all the way back to E.B. Sledge with the Old Breed mm-hmm. and, and Carl Marlantis and more contemporarily Swafford and uh, <laughs> and our our mutual friend Jake Wood, who we had on on the show. And I think the Marines do that. In a way that the other branches don't. Maybe the Navy comes close, but what is it about the DNA of the Marine Corps that occasionally spits out these literary figures? You have, a, you have a former commandant who everyone even described as a warrior monk, Mattis, of course. He had a required reading list, and it wasn't all strategy. It was a lot of classics. Why do the Marines have that in their, in their bones?
0: I think you're certainly right to identify that. But, you know, again, like Mattis isn't the first commandant to have a reading list. So This is just a through line that's always existed in the Marine Corps. And I think the Marine Corps is, by definition, a little bit of an eccentric service. You know, it's famously been said America doesn't have a Marine Corps because it needs a Marine Corps. America has a Marine Corps because it wants a Marine Corps. We're sort of these, you know, soldiers from the sea. We are kind of half Navy, half Army. And I think all of the kind of eccentricities that are bred into the Marine Corps culture attract a certain type of person. And I think those people sometimes, yes, like they do manifest as authors and sometimes people who kind of, you know, want to be with a bunch of other folks who are kind of a little bit on on the outside in terms of the service that they are a part of. You know, like I'd only give you one example of of this would be, you know, one of my best friends in the Marine Corps, we met in training when I was uh, still a midshipman in ROTC and he was a lieutenant. And he You know, had a distinguished career in the Marine Corps and special operations, left went and worked for the CIA in in that one of their special operations units, now runs that unit. And, uh, you know, is kind of the most, on his resume, grizzled commando you could imagine. Been in and out of wars for the last 20 years, was in the Iraq invasion. But, you know, in his background, you know, he was a creative writing major out of UVA and, uh, you know, recently got his Master of Fine Arts and Poetry kind of on the side. So the Marine Corps is like filled with people like this. And oftentimes, I think to the outsiders, they don't realize that there's kind of a different, more cookie cutter conception of what the organization is and the people who are inside of it.
1: Well, I'm glad I asked you and I'm glad you answered in that way, because I would imagine the vast majority of people hearing that kind of description of the Marine Corps would think, really, <laughs> That that's what? it's made up of and i'm wondering when you talk about the eccentricity that it attracts if if that was at all intentionally or not self-referential when i look at your background and the many paths you could have taken what the hell drew you
0: to the core um a lot of things it's also famously been said that the army has its tanks the navy has its ships the air force has its planes and the marine corps has its culture and so I think the, you know, as I learned about the Marine Corps when I was younger, I, I found that culture appealing. I knew that I wanted to serve in the infantry and, uh, you know, the Marine Corps famously has it saying every Marine is a rifleman and really kind of the, the core organizing principle in the Marine Corps is to support the infantry. And so I found that attractive because I knew I wanted to serve. So as I was looking at branches, I you know, because I wanted to serve and have that experience of small unit leadership, it seemed like the Marine Corps made a lot of sense. So I would say really kind of the culture is what ultimately drove me there.
1: Years ago, you wrote this in a Vogue article, speaking of the the variety of your writing outlets, you wrote, I was raised by a financier father and a novelist mother. And although I was that little boy who never stopped playing with GI Joes, the Marines wasn't the obvious choice. I chose to serve because I didn't want to spend my early 20s scouring spreadsheets at a bank or making photocopies at a law firm, for better or worse. I wanted a job with actual responsibility where my performance really mattered, and it did in the Marines. It mattered in terms of lives. Did you get what you signed up
0: for? Uh, yes. And then some. That, to me, that kind of sense of wanting a job that mattered and wanting to do work that mattered is what drove me into the military in general and kind of what I just referred to is what kind of led me to the Marine Corps as a service. Because, you know, as you know, that type of work that you do, you know, where your decisions matter and you have that responsibility at a young age, I mean, that's not exclusive to the Marine Corps. You get that in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, I think anywhere in the service. It's remarkable the amount of responsibility they give to young people. And I think for me, what was interesting is, you know, I began. Navy ROTC in 1998. So that was sort of when I made my commitment that I was going to go into the Marines. And, you know, at that point, America was at peace. There was no war. There hadn't been wars for a while. And the ones that we've been engaged in, we had won handily, I mean, you know, really since Vietnam. And so there wasn't some big expectation that we would be at war. I mean, I had a college roommate at one point who kind of asked me pointedly, why are you going to the military? It just seems like such a waste of time because our military doesn't fight wars anymore. And obviously, that all changed. I was finishing college when 9/11 happened. I was, you know, in Quantico, finishing up my training when they announced that the Marines would be going back to Iraq after the invasion in 2003. And then from that point forward, I very much sort of had this, particularly my first deployment as a rifle platoon commander, this very intense kind of everything you would imagine a rifle platoon commander doing in combat type of deployment. So it certainly exceeded my expectations. I don't say that like in a positive, like, oh, like you know, oh, it was so much fun. But I never thought I would have been having so much experience right out the gate.
1: So that's what I want to get to, because it seems to me like the romanticized notions of service that you may have entertained upon joining confronted the reality of war. And in Afghanistan, the reality of a war with a lack of clear missions and undefined outcomes, how did you square that with your... Idealistic notions of service.
0: I wouldn't say that my trajectory was one of idealism meeting a reality and then resulting in disillusionment. You know, there was a certain point when I was in Iraq. Uh, this was on my very first deployment. So I like check into my platoon in April of 2004, and like a little more than like six weeks later, I'm in Iraq in June of 2004. And that fall, I fought in the Fallujah battle which was, you know, just some very intense urban combat. And I remember at a certain point in that battle, my company commander grabbed me and one other lieutenant. And it was only two of us because one of the other lieutenants had just been killed and another of our lieutenants had been wounded and evacuated. So, like, we, you know, we'd been through a lot of stuff in this handful of days. And he pulled us aside and he said, you know what? He said, you two guys are both the luckiest and the unluckiest lieutenants I've ever met. He said, you're the luckiest because right out the gate, you're doing this and having this experience. And he said, and you're the unluckiest because everything else you ever do in the Marine Corps is going to be a letdown after this. And letdown, not like it was fun, letdown just like in intensity, purpose, and understanding exactly what you're doing and really getting to do your job. It's going to be a letdown. You know, and in many ways, what he said was prophetic. I mean, I went on to have other deployments that meant a lot to me and were important where we did, you know, very, very good real work. But In terms of just like pure combat, nothing was as intense as that first deployment. And so I just bring that up because it kind of gets to these questions again of like, why are you there? And if you asked me, you know, again, we touched on this, like, why did you join the Marine Corps, Elliot? Why are you there? It was for all of these ideas. Like I wanted to have a job where whether I was good at my job or bad at my job really mattered. And it mattered in terms of lives, And those lives were really the the young Marines in my platoon. I was making decisions. You know, and I knew it. I mean, I can think back to really five or six times like where we there was a decision going on and a conversation I was having on the radio. And like guys were kind of watching me having this conversation. And in their faces, I can see they know that the outcome of this conversation is going to determine you know, whether they live or die. And I, like, I don't say it to be dramatic. It's just sort of the reality of the tough spots we were in. That's why if you grabbed me in the streets of Fallujah or later in Afghanistan and said, why are you here? That's the answer I would have given you. It wouldn't have been a political answer. So everything that happens later, obviously in Iraq and Afghanistan, like yes, like there are, you know politics goes south. Fallujah gets overrun by the Islamic state. you know, we're pulling out of Afghanistan, like those are all things that have happened politically, but they have never really affected me in feeling disillusioned because that's not the real reason I was there. You know, I was there for the reason I gave you before to matter to that group of guys.
1: Do you think the buddies you served with have found that same? sense of clarity and peace around their involvement in the light of the current proposal to leave Afghanistan? Because I'm hearing a lot of angst. I'm hearing a lot of confusion and anger and a lot of agreement as well. But, you know, there are plenty of folks who can't disentangle the politics from why they were there.
0: I think, I mean, listen, I don't speak for all veterans. I'm just speaking for myself. So I I would only say that the way I feel, I know a number who do feel very similarly, and I'm sure there are others who feel who feel differently. Now, if you want to talk to me about like the politics of it, like I certainly have my political opinions about what we're doing, and you know, I write about it frequently. But like the real core of my disillusionment, you know, the things that are hard on me and keep me up at night, they're not rooted in like political regrets. And you know, and I certainly have my you know things that I look back on at my time in the service that are hard. But they're not political things. They're more like personal things. You know, experiences. Man, I wish we'd gone this way instead of that way. That guy would have been alive. You know, stuff like that, that that I think, if I were to say anything, it kind of eats at my soul. It's moments like that.
1: Were you writing at the time of your deployments?
0: No, I wasn't. You know, as you mentioned my mother's a writer, so I always grew up around books and literature and other writers. So it didn't seem like the most ridiculous thing to do when I got out. Although I will, I will confess that it did... Still, those seem a little bit ridiculous. I think getting out of the military and saying, you know, I want to write is a little bit like saying, you know, I want to dance, you know, when you don't have anything <laughs> to, to, to show for it, it, seems kind of silly, but, but I had one or two sort of false starts. Like I thought, oh, maybe I'll write about this someday. And then, you know, I maybe tried once or twice. And I mean, when I say tried, like maybe I wrote two or three lines and it just, the idea of writing about all this stuff while it was happening, just sort of, at least for me kind of felt false in a way. I really couldn't get anything going. And it was actually, this might sound even a little bit trite, but I was actually on my last deployment in Afghanistan and I handed in my resignation letter. So I knew that was gonna be the last one. And it was literally the day after I handed in that letter, I started making what I considered a kind of my first serious attempts at writing. And I think that's because I needed the psychological closure of saying, okay, like this is over. Now you can move to what's next.
1: Was writing in any way a catharsis?
0: I know for some people it can be. I would say for me, writing is so difficult and frustrating to get it right, that it can often feel like the opposite of catharsis. I feel like I'm trying to put my head through a wall. So no, I would not say it's cathartic. The one thing I would say is the writing I've done about the war has certainly led me to a point now where like there's certain things where I just I know what I feel about them with real clarity because I've just thought them over so much and done all this work to try to get it down on the page just right, just how I want to say it. So when I'm asked about it now, I'm not wrestling to kind of pin down certain ideas. I've like staked them down in my writing.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. So much of your writing has been about our country's adventures and misadventures abroad. Even imagined misadventures abroad as in the case of 2034. But you're also beginning to shine the light inwards at internal divisions and the threat that they pose. And I I have to imagine you've gotten a lot of feedback on this recent Harper's cover story, which they titled The Next Civil War. What drew you to that story, given just how focused most of your work is on external threats?
0: I think it... Part of it stems sort of from a series of conversation I kept having with friends of mine who were veterans in which we would kind of try to situate our wars in kind of a larger narrative of America and global security and said, you know, how are the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan going to, you know, feature someday historically? And many of us kind of with a grim pragmatism kind of had had said, you know, I bet we're going to be remembered kind of like the equivalent of the veterans of the Boer War in so much as, the real defining event has not come yet it's coming up and then when people look back they'll see all of this as sort of prelude to what that event is you know and increasingly I'm just I'm concerned about the direction our country is going in somewhat unconsciously or at least without a lot of awareness with regards to its relationship with our military and I'll just say up front you know I am a totally unapologetic both sides are politically I think both sides, both the right and the left are behaving very very poorly at this moment and tearing us apart so there's no center left for anyone in America to stand on anymore. So with that being said, I think that one of the things these wars has done is we have just a massive civil military divide that exists in this country right now where we've gone through now 20 years of war, that unlike other wars have been funded through deficit spending, meaning nobody's paid any taxes on them, and manned through an all-volunteer military. We've never done that before. And if you look back historically, history does not treat republics with large standing militaries and very dysfunctional internal politics well. Like when you have those two dynamics present in a republic, the outcome is usually not a positive one. And that is a dynamic that is completely present right now in the United States, particularly in so much as we've also seen the the politicization of everything in America in the last couple of decades. All of our industries are politicized. All of our media is politicized. Film is politicized. Companies we see are politicizing. And so really, I would argue one of the very last bastions of an apolitical institution in the United States is the U.S. military. I don't think you can say right now, like the U.S. military has a heavy political bent left or right, or, you know, it hasn't been tarnished in that way. But you're certainly seeing forces, again, I would say on both sides that are trying to do this and that are kind of pushing political agendas at the military. And, you know, woe be unto us if you see the U.S. military politicized in this country. And that is something that truly frightens me. And having worked as a journalist, you know, I covered the war in Syria for a number of years. You know, when you politicize the military, that's when things get incredibly dysfunctional incredibly fast.
1: Are the cultural ligaments within the military strong enough to keep those traditions together and resist the increasing calls for politicization that you're seeing from all sides?
0: Well, right, they're only they're strong up to a point. And that's the unfortunate thing is you don't know how strong they are until they break, Right. And so, you know, what frightens me is just sort of when we see these incidents, these gestures where you can see the politics getting pushed on the military and, you know, the military pushes back and circles the wagons, sort of keeps the politics at bay. But what I find, again, so concerning is each time we're kind of flirting with the precipice more and more closely. And why, why even go there? It's terrifying to me. And I feel like the people who are kind of pushing us near that precipice are not 100% cognizant of what they're doing. They're sort of, you know, driving with a blindfold on. They don't like recognize what's on the other side of that. And I can, you know, imagine and talk through like many scenarios that I've just been like, wow, you know, if like, I've almost often felt like I'm watching a dance, right? And I'm seeing our politics and, you know, the politicians and everybody, they're doing this dance. And I feel like, oh, I recognize this dance. We're on steps like three and four of this cha-cha-cha. But when you get to steps like eight, nine and 10, that's when there's, you know, a military coup or a schism within the military. You know, like, why are we dancing this dance? And then, you know, we stop at step four and we go back to step one. I just find it terrifying to watch us engaging in these dances. And I feel like, for instance, you know, this past year in 2020, we were going through many of those dance moves. And, you know, I count me alarmed. That's why I wrote the piece in Harper's.
1: You talked about the military's efforts to keep the politics at bay, but that becomes a really gray area when when that requires standing up to civilian authority. I mean, we actually saw that in unprecedented ways, at least publicly, with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs reportedly refusing to countenance the invocation of the Insurrection Act with all of the the Joint Chiefs Signing that memo, reminding the military, those in uniform, that their oaths were not to the president. I mean, unprecedented stuff. Every former Secretary of Defense signing that open letter about the dangers that Trump's actions posed to the democracy. Is that the dance you're talking about, and approaching a step too far, in which the military? actually oversteps and does not honor the primacy of civilian control?
0: Yes. I'm, you know, I'm like, count me concerned that we have this sort of coterie of retired generals, retired intelligence heads who now, at a moment's notice, weigh in on domestic political issues. And again, everything you said, I totally agree. Like, these are real issues. And like the fact that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs has to tell the president, like, you cannot invoke the Insurrection Act. And it feels the need to remind troops that their oath is just to the president. Like, I find that alarming. You know, but then like, I also find it very alarming when you see a letter signed by former intelligence heads saying that like the Hunter Biden laptop is Russian disinformation when like, it's been shown that it's not. Like, why do you feel the need to weigh in on this? like just get your nose out of it. You represent an agency that should not have a political agenda and you might be retired, but putting your nose in this politicizes your agency. And that used to be a line that former heads didn't cross. Now they cross it all the time. And I would argue it only, no matter which side you're doing it on, it only takes us closer to a moment where people feel like they have to choose within the ranks. And that's the moment you have to avoid, because if you ask the entire U.S. military, if something happens, a real crisis politically, and and I can lay out kind of things I've imagined that to me don't seem implausible, and you look at the entire U.S. military and say, okay, now you got to choose. Who are you with? People will choose. We've done it once before in the history of this country, and it won't be pretty. I mean, it'll go just like this country, right down the middle. Everybody in the ranks, they all have political biases. Just don't ask them to engage with them.
1: In your Harper's piece, you laid out how this might happen, and I want to quote part of it back to you and get your reaction. The confluence of these two events, an electoral victory that depended on bringing a record number of people into the political process and the fierce efforts of an entrenched minority to subvert that process through violence, naturally raises the question of whether peaceful reconciliation is possible or whether our polarization and dysfunction will cause a fracture in American society comparable to the Civil War. How do you feel in the months since you penned that and the the reaction it's certainly gotten?
0: You know, listen, I live six blocks from the Capitol. So I live between DC and New York, so I'm I'm half and half. And one of the things that was very psychedelic for me was um, being in DC and then being in New York. In New York, kind of January 6th happened, you know, there was the fall, you know, life in New York was kind of going on. In DC, I mean, listen, without hyperbole, like, it was totally militarized by my house. You know, the day of the inauguration, I'm walking my kids out the door and there's all four blocks. There's two National Guardsmen in all four blocks and they're armed. Again, it felt like something I'd seen in Baghdad. And so just seeing that in American streets was was very, very odd. You know, I was I had to drop my wife off at the train station the day before the inauguration. And they had like immediately shut down the way you can get to Union Station and she was going to miss her train. You know, I basically had to like talk my way through a checkpoint. As though I was like in Syria or something to this twenty-year-old private. Just seeing that in America was quite striking. Obviously, like that has dissipated, but it would seem to me: Are we entering an age where every election now becomes a contested election? And that, to me, is is a terrifying precedent. So you know, the twenty twenty election really set, I think, a horrible precedent. And are we going to break that cycle in twenty twenty two and twenty twenty four? And God, I hope we do. But if we don't. I think it's only a matter of time until you see a true breakdown around one of these elections. You know, some iteration of January 6th where you're kind of not able to de-escalate and get our politics back into some semblance of normal.
1: It may feel different in DC, you tell me, but It feels like in much of the country, there's this concerted effort to forget what happened on January 6th, to move on, to pretend it was some anomalous spasm, right? And, you know, it's not going to happen again if we pretend it didn't happen in the first place. That scares the hell out of me as, as much as having troops in the streets to remind us of it. What do you think?
0: That's funny. I actually feel the exact opposite. I feel like there's a real effort to keep January 6th in the headlines, like very intentionally, we're gonna keep talking about this, keep talking about this, keep talking about this. And I think I think January sixth happens in a context too. It happens after a whole six-month period where, you know, violence in America's streets kind of like became the norm. It was not a big deal to see people marching into state houses. You know, the Capitol was not the first legislative body to be marched into. So like there'd been several others. There hadn't really been huge consequences to it. We'd seen federal buildings attacked out west. You know, we'd seen right-wing elements storm into state capitals around COVID restrictions. Like, all of this was brewing. All of this was going on all through that year. And then sort of the, you know, the January 6th was like the finale.
1: Do you think it's the finale or a portent of things to come?
0: I think it's a portent of things to come if we don't get sound leadership in this country that very clearly doesn't create the oxygen for these things to occur. And there's things that I observe and I think both parties do that create the space that allow things like January 6th to occur.
1: I want to pick up on something you said a little bit ago, alluding to the Boer War and its, its parallels to the post-9-11 veteran experience today and your suggestion that the defining event of our generation has yet to occur. That seems kind of ominous especially in the light of January 6th. Did you mean it that way?
0: Yeah, I I have a sense that we can't keep going as we've been going. And I remain skeptical that we're just going to internally correct. And when I say the way we've been going, I mean, our politics are completely dysfunctional and broken. Our society right now is as divided as it's ever been since the American Civil War. We consume a media, you know, our news media, and I would say even our culture now, that really encourages division in many respects and, and, you know, and frankly, profits off of it. I mean, the model for so many of these news companies and social media companies is outrage. It's, you know, you create outrage, outrage gets you eyeballs on screens, eyeballs on screens equals profit. And so we're sort of in this doom loop. And unless we break that dune loop, it's going to lead us somewhere. So if that cycle doesn't remain unbroken in some ways, I think we're, I can't tell you exactly what that's going to look like, but I don't think it's going to end well for the United States. I mean, listen, I hate to be so down about it. America is great, but like, this is a real problem and we've got to deal with it. And it's systemic, though it's frequently not served up to us as systemic, it's served up to us as partisan.
1: And at the same time, external threats have not dissipated this is my pivot exactly. to uh, yep. to 2034 i'm wondering if that factors into your pessimism as well because one of the other ingredients that predicts civil war is the kind of existential external crisis that is not successfully met and you and Admiral Stavridis clearly see the militaristic rise of china as one of those external threats your book has been hailed as a as a warning and is being taken seriously in the Pentagon and among policymakers. I assume that was part of your intention.
0: Absolutely. And again, we've talked thus far about, you know, obviously internal threats to the United States, but you know, this could be something external. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're both sort of you know Iraq Afghan war guys. And, you know, as the Afghan war now is winding down, I think when you look at one of the costs, both financial in terms of, you know, human lives. One of the also enormous costs has been the opportunity costs on fixating on these insurgencies for 20 years. And while we've been doing that, you know we've seen the rise of real peer-level competitors, particularly in the form of China. And we're now, I think the military is now very much playing catch-up. So you combine that dynamic with, again, an internal politics where You know, we're quibbling with each other and arguing about microaggressions and, you know, and our adversaries are, they're building right now. They're, you know, they are claiming the entire South China Sea. The Chinese claim the entire South China Sea as territorial waters. The South China Sea is half the size of the continental United States. It is as large as the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean Sea combined. So it would be the equivalent if we woke up tomorrow as Americans and said, we claim the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean are American waters. You are not allowed to drive ships through those waters. They're ours. I mean, it's a totally ridiculous claim, yet China claims those. The Chinese Navy right now is larger than the United States Navy. Now, granted, our ships are more sophisticated, but they are building ships. They have very clear intentions in both the South China Sea and with regards to Taiwan. And I would argue if you were to look right now, if the Chinese were to act on Taiwan tomorrow, Gallup recently had a poll that showed three quarters of Americans don't think we should do anything. And the Chinese are looking at these numbers as well. And I don't, you know, I don't say that to a warmonger. I just bring it up because we are sort of as Americans caught in this like very insular reality where we're all at each other's throats, and we behave with a certain degree of impunity as though this does not affect our position in the world, and it absolutely does.
1: Can we talk about the potential for follow-ons, or is that still under wraps?
0: Sure, I'm happy to talk about it. We're turning it into a trilogy, so we will be writing a book right now tentatively 2054- which is going to be a novel of the next civil war and twenty seventy four, which will likely deal with the climate crisis.
1: Twenty fifty four being the next American civil war.
0: Yes, American civil war. It's also going to deal with um, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and biotech. Interesting trends as we you know look out into the next few decades.
1: Is that going to be a stretch for you as a writer? Do you are you looking forward to that? The, no, I look forward, the techno yeah. thriller stuff. I mean, that's not your thing, right? You know,
0: my thing is. I think if you read a book like 2034 like you'll see there's lots of I guess what I would kind of consider my trademarks in there. You know, it is in many respects definitely a character driven book. There are five central characters and you are very much in their head and experiencing this war from their perspective and many of those characters are individuals who are antagonistic to the United States. And when they step on the page, you know, they're making their case to you the reader like they would make it before God and you're hearing you know, what the Chinese Admiral Lin Bao thinks about America from his mouth. And so doing that type of imaginative work exists in a lot of my writing. Uh, and so it certainly exists in 2034. And as we're kind of laying out 2054 right now, that's going to also continue to exist. So, but again, too, I also like pushing into new terrain. And I also have a, a couple of books that will probably be coming out in the interim that are, you know, works I've done on my own.
1: I wanted to ask you about one of those characters. What was it like trying to get inside a Marine Corps aviator's head? <laughs> I say oh. that as a Navy pilot.
0: Uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, so there's a character in the book who's a Marine pilot. His call sign is Wedge. And it's Wedge because a Wedge is the world's oldest and simplest tool. And oh, we very had much one sure in our squadron. I've met many Wedges. And since the books come out, I have actually had a few people email me and be like, I was Wedge in my squadron. Um, <laughs> You know, and he's sort of a throwback character, kind of to the. He's a fourth generation Marine Corps pilot. His dad flew in Iraq and Afghanistan, his grandfather in Vietnam, and his great grandfather uh, in the South Pacific in World War II. So he's sort of this character that's a throwback to kind of a more classic 20th century vision of sort of American machismo. But here he finds himself at the first major war of the 21st century, and he still has a use, but he's certainly kind of out of place. So uh, he's like a character you take off the shelf.
1: Well, thanks for sharing, Elliot. We end every episode of Burn the Boats with the same question: What's the bravest decision you have ever made?
0: Oh man, I think probably to to write. I was, you know, like I, I mean, I joked and said saying you want to write is like saying you know you want to dance. It feels very silly, but I think for everyone who gets out of the military, it's tough to figure out what you're going to do next and how you're going to find your purpose after you've had one that is so intense with the type of purpose I think many of us experience when we serve. And so for me, it was a real leap of faith to try to find my purpose in something that in many respects was so different from the experience that I just had. Many people I know, I think all of us have had our struggle kind of figuring out what's next for those of us who've left. And so I think each of us, you know, it takes a little bit of courage to have a vision for yourself of who you're going to become after you've had uh, those experiences.
1: Well, we're lucky you chose to write. The book is called 2034, a novel of the next world war. And I, I highly encourage everyone to read his Harper's cover story, The Next Civil War. Thanks, Elliot, for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me, Ken.
1: Thanks again to Elliot Ackerman for joining me. You can learn more about his work at ElliotAckerman.com and find him on Twitter at, at @ElliotAckerman. His latest book, co-written with Admiral James DeVridis, is called 2034, a novel of the next world war. Next time on Burn the Boats, I'm talking to Lena Hidalgo, the county judge for Harris County, Texas. Including the city of Houston, Harris County is the third most populous in the country, larger than some states. As the county's chief executive, Lena took early public health measures to stop the spread of COVID-19 and has made great strides to challenge voter suppression in Texas. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to VoteVets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions.
2: History is complicated. or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
0: This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.